those of us, those of you who have been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, know that we've been spending time in the book of Hebrews, which is perhaps the most Jewish of all of the New Testament books. We spent time two weeks ago examining the incarnation, the humanity of Jesus, and what that humanity, what his humanity means for us. We spent last week examining the role of Jesus as our high priest. Now that took some work, didn't it? Because we had to go back into some things that we don't know very much about. And so those of you who were not here, what I would suggest is um, go get a good Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia, or go to one of the great online free resources that are out there, and do a little bit of research on the Old Testament sacrificial system, the tabernacle, and the temple that came after the tabernacle, and the role of the high priest. It doesn't take that long to do the research, but it's research that if you do not do, you cannot really understand the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews was written to a bunch of Jews who had converted to Christianity and followed Jesus. So we were working primarily out of a couple of passages in Hebrews, and I want, what I want to do, because today we're going to be talking more about application, so I, what I want to do is look at the scriptures that we talked about over the last two weeks, and I'm going to endeavor to give a brief summary. I say that with tongue firmly in cheek. Those of you who know me know that brief summary is a contradiction in terms. Uh, it's a, kind of an oxymoron, uh, but I'm going to do my best. So let's take a look at Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. This was the section that we looked at primarily in talking about the incarnation or the humanity of Jesus. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now from this passage, we talked about how Jesus took on real human nature. Uh, he didn't have the sinful human nature, that, that you and I have as uh, descendants of Adam after the fall, his human nature would have been like that of Adam before the fall. He was made like his brothers in every respect, however. So when you think about 
every respect, the Bible means every respect. His humanity was just like yours and mine. Jesus experienced life in our flesh and blood. He experienced the feelings and the sensations and the experiences that you and I do. That's a really radical thought if you just sit with that for very long. When you think about what you experienced this morning or yesterday or last week, uh, what it's like to have a body, what it's like to be in relationship with other people, what it's like to sleep and eat, everything. He was made like us in every respect. Now, why? Why was this? Jesus became fully man, the scripture says, for two reasons. First, to be our sacrifice for sin. He had to be made man so that he could die. And he had to be able to die so that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, that's us, were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, occupational hazard of being God, you cannot die. So if you're going to be the sacrifice, you have to become man. The second reason he had to be made fully man is explained in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What an do you ever think about Jesus suffering when he was tempted? Or do you think of him kind of coasting through it like it was not that big of a deal? I think sometimes when we think about him being tempted in all respects as we are, we forget that Hebrews says he suffered when he was tempted. This was no easy deal. So when you think about your suffering when you're being tempted, he relates to that because he was fully human and he faced our temptations in every respect. Being fully man, however, did not diminish the fact that he was fully God. And you'll have to go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and do your homework to see, to fully appreciate that. We have two, Jesus had two natures in one person. He was fully God, higher than the angels, eternal Son of God, and yet became fully man. And if you can wrap your brain completely around that, come see me after the service and tell me how you did it. What being fully man did for Jesus is that it enabled him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. This process of living in our flesh and blood gave Jesus the experiences we have of being in space and time and dealing with the things that accompany having bodies like ours. He can empathize with us in the carrying out of his high priestly duties. He's like us. He's one of us. If we were to go on into Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about how every high priest is chosen from among men. He was one of them. They could relate. He had his own weaknesses, his own issues. The high priest said, Jesus had the infirmity of a human body. There's nothing that you go through that he does not have empathy for. Now, last week we talked about his role as a high priest, and we were working primarily out of Hebrews 4, 5, 9, and 10. There was a ton of material, and all of those of you who are here and I, whom I kept late can attest that uh, there was a lot of material. Please do your homework. It's really worth doing. 
if, if you don't know much about the tabernacle or the temple or the veil or the sacrifices, just take an hour and, and get in there and, and do some study on it because when you reread the book of Hebrews, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come alive and you'll understand things that, that before may have just seemed really odd. Like, well, what is he talking about? You do the homework and then you understand. What we learned in a nutshell is that under the old covenant, God ordained a system of sacrifices where animals were offered to God and play our place as the penalty for sin. And this happened in a courtyard of the temple, and it went on pretty much continually. Uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God literally dwelt in a, in a t- visible, tangible form, once a year, but not without blood blood from the sacrifice. There was, if, you, if you go to um, Leviticus and read the story of the Day of Atonement, it's, it's a laborious thing. There's many changes of clothes, there's many washings, there's many rituals, there's, there's several sacrifices, there's burning of incense. It's a big deal. And it had to be all done correctly. Uh, people who had messed up and done things uh, incorrectly or who had been uh, disrespectful of the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, uh, had wound up dead. And so th- there was a uh, tremendous respect held for this area, and it was only entered once a year. The high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice in on that Day of Atonement, and it was for all the people. His first sacrifice was for himself, but then the second one was for all of the people. And we talked about how the book of Hebrews describes the earthly temple as a shadow of heavenly realities. Now with this in mind, Jesus, our great high priest, took the blood of his own sacrifice, not into an earthly holy place, but into the very presence of God. One time for all. His sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. His priesthood will endure forever. And he inaugurated a new covenant in his own blood. So today I want to look at some of the passages that we looked at last week. But we're going to be kind of moving from the doctrine into the application. So with that in mind, let's go to Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Thank you, Eli handsome young man running the slides back there. Tell him thank you as well. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And moving on to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, both of these passages you see the high priesthood of Jesus put forth as the means by which we have access to God. He is the one who has brought the sacrifice. He is the high priest over the household of God. Notice also in both passages that there is encouragement to hold fast to their confession of their hope. That is, in who Jesus said he was and the fact that he was going to come again. Now, so, just a little bit of context. I'm still kind of recapping, if you can believe it. Uh, remember that the Hebrews were struggling with persecution. They were Jews who converted to Christianity, but they are beginning to doubt. They are wondering about the second coming, which hasn't happened yet. And they are suffering the, the loss of their possessions and being persecuted, publicly afflicted. And they were beginning to think that perhaps they had been a bit hasty in accepting this Jesus as their Messiah. And there was some wondering about maybe going back. But the author of Hebrews says to them that they need to remember that this Jesus is the Son of God, chapter 1. That he is a perfect high priest, he offered a perfect sacrifice once for all, and he inaugurated a better covenant. In a way, what the whole book of Hebrews is saying to this group of Jewish converts is, hey, look, don't forget what you know. We know that this is true about Jesus, his, his role, who he was, what he was, fully God, fully man, perfect sacrifice, high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We know all this stuff. Don't doubt. Hold fast your confession. He also came to tell them that there was a throne of grace and that he wanted them to draw near to God. And today, that's really what I want to focus on, is what is, it, what is this drawing near all about? And, and it is a very large topic, and, and what you will find is, as, as I have said before, I'm probably leaving out way more things than I'm including, but I want to I wanna, I wanna pique your curiosity. I want you to all to go home and think, oh, you know, he didn't talk about this. I wonder, I wonder about that. And then maybe in a couple of weeks you'll be teaching the Sunday school class telling us more about your take on what it means to draw near to God. That would be cool. So I've been thinking a lot in the last few weeks about why we don't come to God more than we do? Why is it that we don't draw near uh, the way that we could draw near? I've known a lot of believers over the course of my life, and one of the most common things I've heard from them is that they, they don't believe that they pray as much as they should. They don't believe that they read the Bible as much as they should. Uh, they don't feel like the quality of their devotion to God is what it really should be. I know that my devotional life is not what it should be. It's a comment that kind of sums up what I hear from people. And I would be willing to bet that if I were to ask for a show of hands, which I'm not, because I hate it when people do that, um, if I were to ask, I, I would be willing to bet a lot of money that if you're not feeling that way today, you have felt that way at some point. You're not, you're not, you're not as tight with God as you'd like to be or as you think perhaps you should be. Why is this? Why don't we come to God more than we do? 
Well, there's more reasons for this than that we can deal with this morning, but I want to pick a couple and that I think our scriptures are addressing either very directly or kind of hinting at, and, and we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about those. So one of the more interesting things about us as human beings is that uh, we can kind of go into autopilot. We can go through the motions. We can like be somewhere, but not really be all there. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are doing that right now. <laughs> I got up this morning, I was making coffee in the kitchen and I was only part there because I had not finished making the coffee yet. And uh, Laurel, my daughter, walked into the kitchen and, and she was not all there yet either. All she did, she didn't say anything. She just turned off the kitchen light, which apparently was too bright for her and went and laid down. She was there, but she was not all there. Uh, just like I was there, but I, I was not all there either. You know, we can do that even when we're not sleep deprived or just trying to wake up. Think about, think about the last time you ate in a restaurant and you look around and uh, one, of the things, one of the things you see these days in a restaurant is of course people on their devices. There they are. They are, they are with somebody, presumably somebody they have a relationship with, they're supposed to be connecting with, and they're sitting in a restaurant, and you know what they're doing. You, you, you may have been doing it last night or, <laughs> or Friday night. They're, they're checking the news. They're checking the sports updates. They're looking at the Seahawks pregame special. They're watching cat videos. I, you know, they're doing all kinds of stuff. Right? They're supposed to be going out to dinner. They're supposed to be connecting. Why are they not connecting? Well, they're distracted. Sometimes I have seen an even sadder picture, and that's when you go to the restaurant and you see the couple, and they're not, they're not on their devices, and they're together, but they're not looking at each other and they're not talking. Have you seen this? This is really sad. I remember I was at the, I was at the Outback. It, it was sad for like three or four different reasons, not the least of which was they were at a restaurant where they were gonna spend a whole bunch of money going out to have a good time, and they weren't even looking at each other. And I thought, how very sad. Why are they not connecting? You wonder what the rest of the story is. It probably is some rest of the story. But we have this ability as people to be kind of only partly where we are, only partly focused on what it is that we're doing. Now, those of you who engage in repetitive physical labor uh, know that sometimes this is a blessing. You can get through your workday and you don't have to think about that thing that you're doing a thousand times over because it's sort of automatic now. And that's actually a blessing. But in relationships, this is kind of an enemy because we start doing things on autopilot. We do them by the numbers. We do them by rote. So you cook a nice meal for your family and you do it on autopilot and it doesn't feel like an act of love. And then everybody comes and consumes the meal and they do it on autopilot and they don't see the act of love nor do they reciprocate with gratefulness. How sad that we just go through all that stuff 
without really knowing what we're doing and paying attention to what we're doing. Now, sometimes we're busy and distracted, and I understand kind of how that works. Uh, sometimes this is because we have too much on our minds. But it's dangerous because it affects our relationship with God as well. And that's really where I'm going with all of this. Ritual can be rich, it can be meaningful, or it can be a way of going through the numbers. When we show up here on a Sunday morning, are we focused on the words that we're saying? Jesus never lets go of us, no matter what's going on. We sing that stuff, but are we really paying attention to what we're saying? We don't want to be on autopilot with God. Married couples understand that there's a fluctuation in the, those feelings of connection and intensity of their relationship, and that's normal. But why is the fluctuation there? I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but at least one of the reasons is because we, those feelings kind of follow the behaviors of love and affection. That's why we spent weeks and weeks going through the five love languages in Sunday school, because the way you express love affects the quality of that connection. That's why couples go away to things like the weekend to remember, to draw attention to the relationship, to make it purposeful and intentional. I'm going to intend to do some things that are going to make this better. Draw near. Now, whatever that looks like, it's not accidental. Whatever drawing near looks like, it's intentional. It's something we purpose to do. Now, I'm not going to give a list of all the devotional resources that you could look up. I'm not going to tell you that you should do it in the morning or the evening. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that it has to be a certain length of time or have a certain format or that there needs to be a certain balance between prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and adoration. Those things can be helpful tools to help us structure. But the main thing is, are you connecting with God? When you go to him, are you bringing your heart to him? Or are you like the couple in the restaurant where you're together, but you're not even really looking at each other? Whatever your devotion looks like, that whatever this drawing near with a true heart or a sincere heart looks like for you, make it intentional. Make it your purpose. Go, go make some eye contact with God. Okay? This is one of the first reasons why I think we don't draw near as much as I think we probably all believe we should. And I think where the scripture talks about this is in that Hebrews 10 section where he says, with a true heart or a sincere heart, draw near. So for those of you who are thinking about your devotional lives, please be encouraged, please be exhorted. If you haven't been making eye contact with God lately, then bring a different flavor to your devotion. Give him your heart. Intend to connect. Be intentional about it. second reason. So how do you think Adam 
felt in the garden after he had eaten the fruit and was hiding in the bushes. How many of you think you know something firsthand about what Adam might have felt like after he ate the fruit and was hiding in the bushes? I think we all know that feeling, right? The guilt of sin and the, the, that sense of failure and the, the shame that can go with that. Adam illustrates one of the most common reasons why I think we fail to come. We fail to draw near. We're afraid of judgment. We're afraid, we don't even like how we feel. Sometimes we're trying to figure out a way to not feel what we feel because it feels so awful to have that sense of guilt and shame. How many of you have ever stayed away from church or stayed away from prayer or stopped reading your Bible because you were afraid that you would feel condemned and feel even worse if you did those things. I talk to people almost every day who are in this position. I talked to a woman this, who, who felt this way just this last week. She stopped going to church, has been reading, has been praying, and said, I asked her why. Yeah. She erupted like a fountain of tears. Shame is very powerful, and we fear that others are going to inflict that on us, and in her case, she is also afraid that God is going to inflict that on her. He is going to condemn her. He is going to judge her. Part of this reflects a failure to really appreciate everything that we know about the work that Jesus did. So let's take a look. We're going to take a look at the high priestly passages one more time, we're going to talk a little bit about what, what do we do with this? When, when you're hiding in the bushes like Adam, what do you need to hear? I think what you need to hear is some of the very things that the author of Hebrews brought to this congregation or to these people. Hebrews 4.16, or 4.14 through 16, one more time. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This priest says the author, gets you. He understands he was made in all respects like his brethren. That means you. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. This priest is not one who cannot sympathize with your weaknesses. We talked a little bit about this um, when you, you know, when you want to talk to somebody about what's going on in your life, you want to talk to somebody who gets it. You don't want to talk to somebody who knows nothing about what you've been through. Well, here you go. This priest, the author says, completely gets it. And he is compassionate. It is a throne of grace. It is not a throne of condemnation. We draw near to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This does not sound chancy, like, hey, why don't you give this a try? 
Maybe the judge will be in a good mood. You never know. You might get lucky. He doesn't say that. He says, this is a throne of grace, and the reason you go to the throne of grace is because there's a compassionate high priest right there, and you will receive mercy. How many of you need mercy today? Man, I'm telling you, every day. His mercies are new every morning, but we sometimes forget this, and so we don't come. We don't draw near. Why is the author so confident that this is the case? Because our great high priest has passed through the heavens. The high priest of the Old Testament would pass through the veil that separated the holy place where the priests did most of their work from the holy of holies, which was only gone into once a year. There's this big veil. It's massive. It's 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall, and 4 inches thick. It's big. He passes through the veil with the blood of the sacrifice. What do we have? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He went right into the very presence of God, not the shadow uh, uh, in an earthly form, but the very presence of God takes the blood of the sacrifice to the Father. And then he does a wonderful thing. Not that this wasn't wonderful, but he sits down. When do you sit down? You sit down after the work is done, right? Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. It was finished. It's on the basis of the finished work that we can have confidence or boldness to come. It's not because our sins are few or because they are small. It's not because we have in some way reduced our sin debt by a bunch of good works. Our confidence, our boldness is based on the fact that we have a compassionate high priest who has passed through the heavens. That sin that you did yesterday, that sin that you did a year ago, the sins that you did this morning and every sin you're going to commit between now and the time you stop being on this earth was all in view when Jesus made the perfect sacrifice once for all. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 10, again, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, why? By the blood of Jesus. Not because we've got anything special. You didn't get a backstage pass. You didn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Why do we have confidence? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. By a new and living way that he opened through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus tore, his flesh was torn for us. The veil in the temple when he died was torn from top to bottom. How do you do that? It's 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide and 4 inches thick. God the Father tore the veil of the temple from top to bottom, creating access into the Holy of Holies, the place that only the high priest saw and only once a year. I still love to think about 
what, what, did, what did the priests who went into the temple the next day or later that day think when they saw the temple torn, the, the, the veil torn in two? It wasn't just like shredded a little bit. It was torn in two. What did they think? Did they want to cover their eyes and run? Were they afraid that lightning was going to come or fire from heaven? The way was opened. We have a new and living way. And look who's going into the Holy of Holies now. You and me. That's astonishing. Before, it was only the high priest, only once a year as a representative of the people. Jesus has his flesh torn, the veil is torn, he takes the blood of the sacrifice into the presence of the Father. You and I have access to the Holy of Holies. Oh my gosh. That is astonishing. We talk so casually about having access to God. This morning we sang to the creator of the universe. This morning we prayed to the great God of heaven. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes and our hearts to, fully, to more fully appreciate that, Amen. how amazing this is that we have this access. Talks about having our, our hearts sprinkled of an evil conscience and our body is washed with pure water. If you go back to Leviticus and do your homework, you're going to find that these were things that took place when they anointed the priests who would go into the Holy of Holies. When Aaron was uh, anointed as high priest, his body was first washed with water. Moses washed them all up. And after he was washed, then he and his clothes and his sons, who were also being anointed as priests, and the sons' clothes were sprinkled with a mixture of oil and the blood of the sacrifice. They were consecrated, they were set apart, they were made holy for this purpose. So it's a wonderful image that we miss as non-Jewish people. Um, our hearts are, are sprinkled clean of an evil conscience. The blood of the sacrifice cleanses us from that evil conscience, that, that condemning conscience. The one that says, you've gone way too far you have been way too relaxed about this whole God thing. And those sins that you don't seem to shake off, yeah, you don't really have any business calling yourself a believer or having any confidence before God at all. And the author of Hebrews would say to you, your confidence is not in yourself. Your confidence is in the blood of the sacrifice. Thank you, God. There's so much that we could say about these passages. And I'm busily snipping a few things out right now because I don't want to keep you over long today. But I want to say this. When we allow our guilt and shame to come between us and God, it means we are failing to fully understand what he has done. And we need to get back to the truth of the doctrine that we have before us this morning about what God has done for us. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no longer any offering for sin. It's done. Done. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. There's no reason to shrink back from God even when you are caught in sin and failure. Everything you have done or ever will do was in view when Jesus made the sacrifice. You don't have to wait one minute longer than you have. And I know, I I know in a room this size, there are some of you who have been holding back in your life with God. You have. You know you have. And some of it's this guilt and shame. You're like Adam hiding in the bushes. Maybe you're future tripping. Maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, I could confess that and, and repent, but I'm not very good at that, and I'll probably screw up again. You know what? He already had that in view. He already knew that. Sometimes we think, in from inside of time, that God experiences this whole thing the same way we do. That every time we mess up, he throws up his hands in frustration and says, why do I even bother? Outside of time, it says that he made a perfect sacrifice once for all. Well, if he did that, then he knew what the all included, right? I mean, isn't that logical? So every sin you're going to commit from now until the time you either die or the Lord comes back or the world goes up in flames, it was all in view. I don't think that means we should take sin lightly. God's a holy God. He didn't take sin lightly. He sent his son to die and bear the penalty. That's anything but taking it lightly. But he would never have it that we allow our sin to keep us separated from him. Are you with me on that? There is not one good reason this morning for you to walk out of here feeling separated from God because you've messed up in some way. Don't hide in the bushes. He has made a way. He has paid the price, perfect sacrifice, compassionate high priest, ready to say, come. He doesn't say come timidly. He says come with boldness, come with confidence. Not in ourselves, but in what he has done. He doesn't say come condemned. He says come with your hearts sprinkled 
clean of an evil conscience. So let's do that. Let's come. Pray with me. Jesus, we don't really have good words to describe our gratitude for you, for everything that you have done for us. It's remarkable. It's, it's crazy. It's unbelievable that you would do this, and yet you did it. You have made a way for us to come to you, and you have said that we don't need to be afraid, that we have you, a compassionate high priest. I'm so thankful that you invite us to come. For those this morning who have been on autopilot, God, will you, will you forgive us our complacency and our lack of purposefulness in how we relate to you? And will you spur us on to make eye contact, to really sit in your presence and connect with you? And for those of us this morning who have been suffering with separation from you, feeling separated from you, feeling condemned, feeling defeated, God, may we come with full assurance of faith, sincere hearts, confident in what you've done for us. You say come. You tell us to come. So we come. Will you bless those people this morning who need that comfort? Will you bring reassurance and bring it home by the power of your Holy Spirit? We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that you bless it to us. We pray that it would reverberate in our minds throughout this week and that we will follow you faithfully. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.